Thank you, Jer Jeremy's getting a little bit more carried away each, each week. That being said, good choice, I love that. All right, hey, welcome everybody, glad that you guys are here. I am um, I'm blessed to be able to give this message, I'm also humbled. I, I, every week I get together and I just say, thank you, Lord, for, for calling me to this place, for giving us the vision for this church, and I look out and, and I know online we've got people catching us from all over the world. Today, this morning, uh, was live from Nairobi, Kenya. They were catching us uh, from Deliverance Church in Nairobi. Um, and, and we've got things like that every week. But what I really love is to look out in the crowd that's here in-house and see so many rock stars. We've got Stan and Jackie Jacobson over here. And then today, one time only, I'm going to call you guys out. Rodney and Rodas Gebhardt over here. They are missionaries from uh, YWAM in, in uh, Oswa in um, Dominican Republic. And I was going to say Haiti, but it's not technically right. Um, but I've gone on a few uh, trips with them over to their base over there. If you guys have any questions about their ministry over in, in, uh, in the DR or in Haiti, talk to them. It is a crazy time. They've got... I'm sure tons of stories that I didn't have time for before service about what's going on over in that part of the world. But they could use your support and your blessing. And again, just a great couple to, to get to know. So I'm thankful that you guys are here spending some time with us. Thankful that the rest of you are here. You guys are all rock stars in your own right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Right. You know who you are. You rock stars. Hey, um, let's get going with the message. I am, like I said, I'm so blessed to be able to give this message today. I just, every day is a blessing to do that. We are continuing in the book of Mark. And in the gospel of Mark, I've called the series Jesus the Servant Messiah. And I call it that because I just love Mark. The more I study Mark, the more I love the gospel of Mark. He is so no-nonsense. He has a way of taking this miraculous life-changing, mind-blowing occurrence and boiling it down to one sentence. And Jesus healed the paralytic. Moving on, and then it's the next thing. And it's one thing after another. And the whole point of the gospel of Mark, obviously the gospel is to share the good news of who Jesus Christ is, but he just, he just does everything to draw attention, not to the specific acts. The acts are amazing. The miracles are amazing. But he's pointing to the source of the power, pointing to the source of the miraculous, and that is in Jesus Christ. So rather than to spend an entire book, which you could easily do, expanding on how incredible these miracles were, it says, and there was this miracle, and people were amazed, and people were drawn to Jesus. And that's what it's all about. The miraculous was meant to draw attention to Jesus, to the source of of that power. So we're going to get in. I'm going to recap the last couple teaches just super quick because I think it's important to see this flow of how just from one miracle to another before we get into the message for today. So when we started out, this was two weeks ago. You can catch them online, catch them YouTube, Facebook, or our website if you want to catch the previous messages. But we are in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And this was the man with leprosy who came to Jesus, just expectant that Jesus would heal him. And here's what he says, Mark 1.40. And a man with leprosy came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling down and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Of course, we know 
Jesus was willing. Jesus was more than willing to make the man clean. And he does that. He forgives his sins. He heals the man. And then what does he do? He says, okay, keep it quiet. Don't go tell everybody. It's not time for that yet. Well, as we all know, there's no more sure way of making sure that everybody hears about it than to tell somebody to keep it quiet. Anybody here a good secret keeper? Not me. I, I am a terrible. I see one hand in the back. The rest of you are being honest. Oh, I'm sorry, Kelly. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I am a terrible secret keeper. I get so excited, I just have to let it out. And that's exactly what this man does. Mark 145, but he, meaning the man with leprosy, previously known as the man with leprosy, went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Just picture that. This man goes out and says, you've got to see. Look at me. Look at me. You know where I was yesterday. Look where I am today. That's through this man, Jesus. You've got to see him. And that's exactly what they do. They are just drawn to the source of this miracle that they saw in this man. So they come. So many that he actually, Jesus has to leave with his disciples, kind of go out to a quiet place, maybe a time of, of prayer, of refreshing, maybe, maybe he fasted a little bit. We don't know for sure, but I do know that he had to go find a place to kind of recover. Then he comes right back into it, doesn't spend a lot of time, jumps right back in, goes back to Capernaum, which is kind of his home base in the Galilee region for what he's doing here. Mark 2.3 is where we pick up. This is a message from last week. And some people came, bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. I love the story of the four men. If you remember, if you missed it, go back and check it out. These guys were, their faith was strong. And they would not be deterred. Any, any obstacle for getting their friend in front of Jesus, for getting their friend in the presence of the Lord, they were not going to have any obstacle, whether it was a crowd, whether it was the roof of a house that they didn't own, by the way, and they decided, we're just going to dig a hole in the roof of this house, lower our friend down with, they didn't come prepared for this either, so they're lowering him down by cloths, by ropes they borrowed, who knows what. It was probably a pretty sketchy sight, no matter how it happened, but they had no plan B. All they had is this burning urgency, get our friend in front of Jesus because we know that he'll do the rest. They had that kind of faith. I love that. And Jesus, Mark 2, 5, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. The man rises up and walks. And all who saw it were amazed. We know that because Mark 2, 12 says that. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, meaning everybody saw it happen so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Can you imagine? They hadn't, and there were crowds from all over the place. People had heard, and they were pressing into this curiosity. And in that crowd, we don't know this for sure in Scripture, but I think we can make a logical assumption, and I'll tell you why here in just a minute. In that crowd, that crowd of witnesses watching the healing of this paralyzed man may have been a young man named Levi. This young man named Levi had literally made it his life's business to be in everyone else's business. He had made it his job to know what was going on 
with everybody around there. And I'll tell you why here in just a minute. But this week, as we get into the rest of our scriptures, we're going to start in Mark 2.13. We're going to see that this is a pivotal moment in the life of this man. This man, Levi, through his life choices, through the decisions that he had made, had been estranged by his family. His friends had cast him out. His own culture and society, his own people didn't want anything to do with him. And those were through choices that he made. But thankfully, Jesus looks beyond our choices, looks beyond the mistakes that we make, looks beyond what other people see on the outside and says, I know who you are inside, and I've got something for you. We can always be thankful of that, and that's what the point of this entire message we're going to talk about today is. So, leaving the home of Peter and Andrew, uh, I'm assuming it was Peter and Andrew's home. It, It could have been John and James' home. But what we do know is that Jesus and his disciples and this group of, group of people who are just curious and watching, there are Pharisees in there, there's everybody mixed in together, and Jesus walks down to the docks. Okay, he's walking down to the shore, and as he walks through town, we don't know exactly how far it was, but as he's walking, he's teaching. So Mark 2.13, and he... Meaning Jesus went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. So we don't know. Scripture doesn't record exactly what he was teaching them. What we do know, though, is if we look at the words themselves, and words really make a difference, especially in Greek and Hebrew, if we look at it closely, that word teaching in Greek is didasko. And what it literally means is to cause to learn. Big surprise, right? You're teaching. You're causing somebody to learn. But it's only used in conjunction with teaching Scripture. At least that's the only time we ever see it used in the Bible itself is they're using it in teaching Scripture. So what we can infer from this is that Jesus wasn't just walking with this group of curious people, teaching them about the best time to plant their crops and maybe telling a parable or two or talking about his time in the wilderness. He was literally teaching Scripture. Okay, now, we call it the Old Testament. Then all that they had were the Holy Scriptures. But it consisted of what we would call the Old Testament today. Jesus was teaching that as he walked along, and the crowds were following him. So imagine the Pharisees in the crowd, the very same Pharisees that kind of snuck in and were challenging him when he was healing the the paralyzed man. They're listening to him. And they had to be saying, okay, he's, he's teaching the Holy Scriptures. And he's doing a pretty good job of it. So on one hand, he came dangerously close to saying that he was the Messiah when he healed this man. So we're not totally on board with that, but he is a good teacher. and He's teaching the Scriptures accurately. So they had to be in this place of like, we're not entirely sure what we think about this guy yet. But we're going to follow him, we're going to stick close, and we're going to see how this plays out. That's exactly what they're doing. So they're walking through town, and they come to this section. Mark 2.14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. That's it. That's the story of the conversion of one of Jesus' key apostles and the author of the Gospel of Matthew. That's it. Follow me. And he got up and followed him. 
the end. Okay, guys, have a great day. We'll see you next week. We should probably know a little bit more about what's going on here, right? But that's Mark. It's just so, bam, straightforward. That's it, the end. Moving on to the next thing. But let's look a little bit more at this Levi, the son of Alphaeus, also known as the Apostle Matthew. We're going to look at that just a little bit more because there's something there. It's so important. Just the conversion of an apostle, of course, I think that's kind of important. But there's more there even than that. So let's look at it. Who is Levi, the son of Alphaeus? There are different accounts, different eyewitness people that knew Matthew in later years um, who have kind of come up with an idea of what he really looked like. And here's, here's a kind of a common image of what they believe that Matthew looked like in his later years. Just like that. He was well known. He had a, a journal or a ledger that he would carry with him all the time. Very well known for that. And the look of it, obviously it's a, it's a painting or a sketch from later, but that's very much what eyewitness accounts kind of described him as. Obviously this would have been much later in his life because he's, he's very much a young man when we see him take it up here. So that's kind of what what he sort of looked like, so you can get your mind around that a little bit. Now, his father, it says son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus, there's actually two guys named Alphaeus in Scripture. We see that. And again, if you were writing a book from scratch in order to tell a story, would you have multiple guys with the same name? Would you have Simon, who's also Peter? Would you have Levi, who's also Matthew? Would you have multiple Johns? Would you have... Multiple James, James the greater, James the lesser, you wouldn't do it like that. To me, that just makes it authentic. That's not something that's confusing, but you have to look at it closely, and we're not going to do that too much here. But one Alphaeus was the brother-in-law of Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, and the father to James the apostle. They're not, it's not the same guy, because that would have made Matthew and James brothers, which they weren't. So as confusing as that all is, that's a lesson for another day. Those of you who like to look into that stuff, feel free to do that. Doesn't change our theology here. What we're looking at really is this Levi slash Matthew. From this point forward, we'll call him Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Probably most everybody, even remotely familiar with the Bible, has heard that Matthew was a tax collector. And he also kind of instinctively probably know, whether you know scripture or history or not, also know that tax collectors are generally probably not well-liked. Okay, apologies to any of you who work with the IRS or have family or friends who do. It's a legitimate occupation, but it was different in those days. It wasn't exactly the same. So let's look at why Matthew was so hated. But we're not looking at that just to understand why people hated Matthew. Think about this. One of the most hated types of people or person in general in that region, Jesus saw beyond what everybody else thought and said, I see something in him and called him to be an apostle, called him to follow him, called him then, chose him to write one of the gospels of Jesus Christ that we share today. Aren't you glad that Jesus sees beyond what everybody else sees on the surface? That's our lesson here. But let's look why Matthew was so, was so hated. I always, really honestly, in years past, I had always kind of thought that tax collectors were sort of um, 
enlisted, sort of drafted maybe. That like Romans would say, okay, you, your job is now a tax collector. Put here and, and that's your job, making them an outcast in their society. That's really not how it happened. Generally, these guys, these tax collector guys were usually kind of a little bit outcast anyway. Okay, so we know in Matthew's case, um, he was pretty well educated, self-educated really. Um, he was probably good with numbers because to have that job as a publican or as a tax collector, you would probably have to have that. Probably already, for one reason or another, a little bit of an outcast in order to choose this job. And he did choose it. So a publican, like Matthew, another name for it was a little mocus. Okay? It's hard. They called him a little mocus because he's a little tax collector. He's a sub-level tax collector. Then they had great mocus, which were the, the chief tax collectors, were the big guys. The little guys, the little mocus, like Matthew, worked for the big guys. And actually what they would do is they would buy a franchise. Quite literally, they would buy a franchise. They would go to the great mocus and say, I will give you money to buy the tax collecting franchise in the town of Capernaum, for instance. So Matthew very much chose this. And in fact, he paid for it and got permission to do it. Now, here's how it worked. He had to receive a certain amount of money and pay that on to Rome, okay? Paid it to actually the chief tax collector who then paid it to Rome and then would affirm to Rome, okay, the region, the Galilee region known as Capernaum have paid their portion of taxes. But anything beyond that, that Matthew, for instance, was able to collect, well, that was his profit. That's what he made. So he had every reason to be all up in your business, to know what you had coming, to know if you got an inheritance, to know if you had a great year of crops uh, to where all of a sudden he could tax you. You can afford a little bit more because I know you had a good year in your crops. If you had a visitor maybe that had uh, more money staying in your home, okay, well, now I know that you can afford a little bit more in taxes. Maybe you had a great year fishing, whatever it was, it was his business to know. And then he would report back to the chief tax collector. We hear just a little glimpse of that. Luke 19.2, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. That's back in Jerusalem. So he would report back to Jerusalem, who would then forward that on to Rome. But these publicans like Matthew would literally set themselves up. They'd buy the franchise for that area, and then they would set themselves up in whatever they thought was the best strategic place to capture the most people coming by to get taxes from them. Now, they always had a Roman guard who would, uh, or multiple guards sometimes, who would do two things. Number one, protect the money from getting stolen and make sure that it got back to Rome. But also, when necessary, these guys would actually pay mercenaries to be their strong arms. So they would actually be that, you know, twist your arm or leg breaker like we see, uh, you know, with the mobsters that would go in and say, you can afford more. And if the person didn't want to, they'd say, well, maybe you can if we burn down your shed. Maybe you can if we kidnap your daughter. Things like that would happen. And tax collectors would go to that extent to extort money from their own people. Because again, remember, they shaved right off the top this part goes back to the chief tax collector. That goes to Rome. That satisfies them. 
but if I'm going to get rich, I'm going to get more from these people. So he would do that. Very, they'd set themselves up along fishing docks, trade routes, um, anywhere where they were likely to catch people coming by and have a really good eye on the things that happened. Nothing would escape their eye. That's how we knew that Matthew, just by his very nature and by his job, he would be very curious anytime there was a gathering of people or something going on. And he didn't go with the purest intentions. It was like, is there anything there I can tax? That was his job. That's what he did. Romans now looked at tax collectors, even though they worked for them and they kind of protected them, they were, they were scum just because they were Jewish. Okay, you're, you're just a stain on my shoe. You don't mean anything to me. You're a, a means to an end. And the fact that you collect taxes means we don't have to worry about it, so fine. But he was also then despised and hated by his own people who considered him a traitor. You're a traitor. You're siding with an occupation force and extorting money from us. So his own people didn't like him. The Romans that he worked for and with didn't like him. His own family didn't like him. Even more than the social aspects of that, he would not have been allowed to enter the synagogue to worship, especially not even the temple, but he wasn't allowed to even enter the synagogue to worship. So here begs the question. When we look at Matthew's gospel, he knows a lot about Scripture, what we call, again, the Old Testament Scripture. He quotes it. He quotes from the Psalms, from the law, from Proverbs, um, from the prophets. Matthew quotes all of that he would not have been allowed to go into the synagogue and learn those things the way everybody else did. So here's what we know. Just by his circumstances, he was self-taught, which means he had a hunger in him to know the Scriptures. He had to teach it by himself. Now, here's how this plays out and why I think that's interesting. The Pharisees and many others made it their mission to know Scripture. Okay, they knew it well. They studied it. It was their life to know it well. But when the time came for them to put that into action, they could not allow Jesus to be the one that fulfilled that messianic scripture for them. They had to, that's not him. And if we admit that that's him, that upturns our entire apple cart, and we have a problem. So they were resistant to Jesus from the beginning. Here's the thing, though. Matthew knew all of the scriptures. He knew all of the prophecies. He knew everything that pointed to, Messiah, to the Messiah. And he had all that knowledge without the vested interest in denying who Jesus was. So I think that when Matthew saw Jesus, he connected the dots and said, this could be the Messiah. And then when Jesus calls him finally, it's not much of a choice for him. He has to go. So a social outcast, get this picture of who Matthew is, a social outcast choosing to prey on his own people and side with the Roman occupying force to extort money from a population that could hardly afford it to begin with so that he could then live this visibly extravagant life right in front of them. You get a good picture of who this guy is? He was not well-liked. And that when we say tax collector, we throw it out lightly. That's who this guy is. So I want to show you a clip. This is a clip from the movie The Chosen. 
Uh, and I showed you one last week. I highly recommend the series. If, if you haven't seen it, man, I recommend it. It is not, no, so it's a drama built around Scripture. So it is not, there's nothing in it that goes against what Scripture says, but it fills in some of the emotions, some of the drama, and obviously some of the blanks and what happens in between. But it does it in a very, very respectful way. This is a clip that I think captures the emotion of what it would have been like for Matthew to be chosen. So it's just a couple minutes. Check this out. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy's done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. I don't get it. You didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. <laughs> I love that. Get used to different. So you see that actually the Roman soldier had no recourse to stop Matthew from going because Matthew had paid for that franchise. It was his business, and the Roman was just there to, to guard the income. I think it's amazing, though, to see this as the clip continues. And in Scripture, we see what happens next is they actually have a, a get-together. Part of, one Scripture calls it uh, a reception that Matthew throws. Matthew actually is so grateful to be finally accepted, finally a part of somebody, finally seeing that somebody sees something in me besides just the evil person behind the bars and has reached out and called me. He's so grateful for that, that he actually throws this reception for his fellow publicans, his fellow sinners, friends that would have him as a friend, and invites Jesus and his disciples. Mark 2.15, and it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. Now, as you look at the scripture, pay attention to the capitals in the words he and his. The capitals, capital he, that's pointing to Jesus. 
small case, he or his, is Matthew, just so we can keep it straight in our minds here. And it happened that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his house, Matthew's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Who else was there was this group of scribes and Pharisees who had been following him around. Again, they're like, we, we want to keep an eye on this guy and see what's happening. But they're not able to wrap their minds around this teacher. At this point, they weren't sure what to think about Jesus. Again, remember, he taught Scripture well, although he was really pushing it with the paralytic and some of the things he said about forgiveness of sins. So they weren't quite on board, but they weren't quite sure. So they're following him around to see what he's doing. I've always wondered what these guys were even doing there in the first place, and I think it was just curiosity. But it also, watching this interaction gives us a little bit of clue about how they felt about Jesus, at least at the time, because they didn't address Jesus directly. They talked to his followers and were asking about it. So he was a good teacher. I think he was probably a great teacher. But this guy was a bit of a rogue, and they weren't quite sure at this point. But they do know this. A Pharisee would never willfully mix with these kind of people. Would never. In fact, the word Pharisee literally means to separate or detach. That's literally what that word means. Now, in their minds, they meant keep ourselves holy and apart from sin. But what it really meant is that they couldn't be anywhere near or have anything to do with anything that was impure. Okay, Levitical law said that, and they had to abide by that. Mark 2, 17, and hearing this, how'd you like to be there chatting amongst yourselves and Jesus calls you out from across the room? Oops. Hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We've heard that before. Jesus is actually quoting an old Hebrew proverb that's taken from Exodus 15. So he's quoting a proverb based on a scripture, and he's quoting it back to them. Matthew's gospel, it's interesting when you look at the difference in the gospel accounts. Remember, we're in Mark, which was basically Peter's eyewitness relayed to Mark. Matthew, this is Matthew's house they're at. Matthew saw it. He was there. And can you imagine how focused on every single word that Jesus said that he would have been? Matthew's gospel actually records one more little sentence that's in there. Matthew 9.13, he says this, Now, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That part, I desire compassion rather than sacrifice, is not up there, but if it were, it would be all caps. And all caps doesn't mean that he's yelling it. It means that it's quoting Old Testament scripture. In this case, it's Hosea 6.6. Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I'm not sure why we don't have that either, but we don't have that. There we are. Here's the irony, though. When Scripture says, and Jesus quotes this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, the irony is that in order to show true mercy, it often takes great sacrifice on our part. 
doesn't it? Not the kind of sacrifice that the law dictates. Not burnt offerings, but a true sacrifice. The ability to set aside in our heart what we want. The ability to set aside in our heart what we think we need or what we think we deserve. Or maybe the propriety of something or our embarrassment or our personal space bubble. So many things that we think are proper and desirable and comfortable. We have to be willing to set those aside and reach out to those kind of people that Jesus sought out. Now, Jesus offered salvation to everyone. But that's not who he's offering it to here, and that's not who he came. In his own words, Jesus had come to save sinners, not, let me paraphrase, the self-righteous. Pharisees were very, very self-righteous. And he offered to them, but they couldn't see past the law, past what they were so ingrained in to be able to accept and see what Jesus was truly doing. And what he was doing was offering salvation to what society called the least of these. To what I would bundle myself in of what society says is the least of these. We are all that. We are all that Jesus came for. All he needed was for these people to realize that they needed a savior and that they needed to repent of their former way of life. The word repent just means to turn away from, literally to turn your back on and walk away. Isn't that exactly what we saw in the scene with Matthew? He had everything. He had status as far as he could get it. He definitely had income. He was protected. He had all those things that maybe worldly you could want, and he said, yeah, I'm willing to walk away from it. That's what repentance is. He turned and he literally left it behind, not even knowing what the future held in store, but knowing that Jesus saw something in him that no one else did and was willing to call him to himself. I love that. I love that. So I want to wrap this message up like this. Look at this. I'm almost on time. I say almost because I'm never on time. Well, we talked about starting this church. Pastor Gabe and I were offered the opportunity. We prayed about it. It was some of the most intense prayer I'd ever done in my life. And this was a little over four years ago when we started this. But we prayed for vision. Not just, not just hey, give me the keys and let's do church the way it's always been done. We prayed, God, give us a specific vision. What you want us to do. Because there are churches all over, and there are pastors way better than me, and they're all over the place. And I've never even really taught before, and there's so much. But Lord, if you give it to us, if you give us the vision, you give us our direction, then it can't fail because he is in it. And so when we were doing that, we got this vision to serve our community, first and foremost, but to be a place where everyone, regardless of how you look or your social status or how you dress or the car you drive or whether you know scripture or not or whether you're a believer or not or wherever you are, that you could come here and find a place where you could be accepted, you could be comfortable, and there weren't any self-imposed appearance of righteousness. I wasn't going to allow that in this church because God told me that's not what we are called to do. We didn't want to be another place where the self-righteous gathered to congratulate each other 
on how much they know, on how many, how many classes they've been to, how many Bible studies they've done, how many, the high-fiving over how righteous we are. That's not what we're called to be. And during this time of intense prayer, seeking the Lord's direction, Pastor Gabe got this beautiful vision of what our church was to be. And here's, here's the vision close to it, okay? Not an actual picture of what the Lord gave her, but it's close. You get the idea. And I looked at that, and I immediately said, when she was telling me that, I went, that's awesome. We, the church, we are, Discover Community Church, we're the bowl. And the cherry, we're just overflowing in abundance. We're overflowing so much, the bowl can't even contain everything that's going to be poured out. We're going to be bursting at the seams, and so many people And the Lord said, eh, it's not exactly. See, all this, these aren't our people. See, these that fell out, those are the ones he's called us to. Those ones who maybe don't quite fit in somewhere else. Now, I'm not calling all you oddballs, (laughs) but those who are, you know who you are. Some of you more than others. The gospel of Jesus is not about fitting a mold. It's not about looking the part. It's not about having a resume. Jesus didn't walk around looking for resumes. But he saw something in someone like Matthew that no one else saw. And through that, powerful things happen. That's the way the gospel works. Jesus Christ sees something in you that no one else, no matter how well they know you, no one else can see that. And knowing you to the depth that no one else on this planet can possibly know, he calls you to him. Isn't that awesome? That's what we're here for. So we're going to go into prayer now. Worship team, you guys can get ready. But I think this gospel speaks to me, this message speaks to me about no one being worthy and being the right type to be called to Christ, but that Jesus sees something in us. And we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're called to spread the Great Commission throughout the world. Yes, we are called to that. But this church is called to find those people who fell out of the bowl. Find those people who maybe would never attend a Bible study anywhere in their life, but somehow they're comfortable doing it here because they don't feel judged. Somebody who would never come inside of a church and watch a church service, but somehow they're comfortable here because we have great coffee and we have, we have carpet with, with rips and tears in it and we aren't perfect We're not perfect and we're not trying to be, but we are trying to be a reflection to the world of who Christ in us is. That's our mission. And so as we go into this time of prayer, maybe you pray that God brings those introductions, brings those people to you so that you can say, come and follow me and I'll show you who Jesus is. Come to a place that isn't going to judge you, isn't going to expect anything out of you, It's just a place where you can be who you are and who Jesus called you to be. Maybe that's the prayer. We have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer for for healing, 
If you need prayer for courage, boldness to actually step into that kind of a calling, walk up to somebody who might be considered the least of these and invite them. Maybe you need prayer for something else. We have a prayer team in the back. But let's take communion together. Let's take communion at the end of the service while they worship. Let's do that. And here we do it like this. At the crosses, we have bread uh, and juice and gluten-free crackers, and you can just dip it and serve yourself there if you'd like. Up front here, Gabe and I have wine and bread and crackers, and we'd be happy and blessed to serve you up there. But here's what we do when we take communion. It's not just now's the time we take communion so that we can go home. Each time we take communion, we are aligning ourselves with the mission of Jesus Christ given to us individually. We're saying, yes, the sacrifice, the body broken, the blood shed for me. And internalize, it's not shed for all of us. It was shed for you and you and you and you and you. For you, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, allowed himself to be abused and battered and broken. And he did that for you so that we could be reconciled to the Father, so that we could be washed clean by his blood. And by that then, be a reflection of who he was to the world. That's the mission we have, church. And each time we take communion, we say yes to our part in that mission. Amen? Thank you, guys.